Good evening, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to our Bible class. Today we are covering two major branches of denominations, the Anglican Church, otherwise known as the Church of England, and also the Presbyterian Church, who originated the teachings of Calvinism, another big doctrine that is taught in various different denominations, although it started with Presbyterianism. So let's first talk about the Anglican Church or the Church of England, otherwise known as Anglicanism. Around the mid-1600s, that's, that's when this church came into the scene. And it came about in a very interesting way, basically because King Henry VIII wanted to get married to somebody and the Pope didn't give him a divorce. So he decided to start his own church so that he could call the shots instead of the Pope. So that's a very interesting history of how the Anglican Church gets started. But it did start by this act of supremacy. And this act of supremacy in 1534 was passed, declaring Henry VIII as the supreme head on earth. So he was kind of rivaling the Pope at that at that point and that marked the formal establishment of the church of england as a separate entity from the roman catholic church so a little bit of a different history martin luther uh wanted to present to the catholic church uh, these things that were unbiblical that they were teaching and they were doing he had a biblical reason as to why he was protesting right the protestant reformation and yet here we have king henry the eighth he has another motive completely different as to why he wanted to start the church. So that's very interesting. So under this Reformation, Henry VIII and later other monarchs had some major doctrinal shifts, such as the rejection of papal authority, of course. Later, Queen Elizabeth I saw the Elizabethan religious settlement of 1559 which sought to establish a moderate religious course for England. This is when also the Book of Common Prayer and the 39 Articles became the foundational documents of the Anglican theology and worship. So it was not until later under Elizabeth I that the Church of England actually got cemented as what it is today. So the Book of Common Prayer, a very important foundational document for the Anglican Church, written around 1549 by none other than the Archbishop of Canterbury. And what it did is was just to standardize the liturgy and also translate it into English, because all these things used to be in Latin due to the Roman Catholic Church. And they kind of took a page out of the Catholic Church Many of the rituals were the same as the Catholic Church. They didn't really have any originality in their thinking, but it's just in English. The second edition published you know, a few years later was a little more Protestant, adapt adopting some of the Protestant teachings and uh, 
sort of got away from transubstantiation, which is what the Catholics taught about Jesus eating the bread and the blood. They kind of adopted the more Protestant idea of Christ present as opposed to the bread and the wine turning into the body of Christ. So we see that a little a little few years later. And then under Queen Elizabeth the one, they kind of aimed for a middle ground between Catholicism and Protestant. It's like they didn't want to go one way or the other. So the English people wanted kind of to stay in the middle. That's what they call the Anglican middle way. And then, you know, as as the years went by, the Book of Common Prayer continues to uh to change and adopt itself. But it, it, it has kind of stayed similar since 1662. It's still very widely used. That's what all the Anglicans use. I don't know if you've ever met an Anglican, but typically somebody who comes from England or from one of the countries which England oversaw are typically Anglican. And so another important foundational document is the 39 Articles. And so these 39 Articles, I'm obviously not going to go into all 39. You can kind of look them up and see what they see. But some of interest, they look very similar to the Protestant ideas that was going on, basically, that the scriptures contain all that is necessary for salvation, kind of like this idea of rejecting tradition or rejecting the Pope or one person, although the queen is still the head of England right now. Uh, the king, right, who, who's the king right now of England, he is also known as the head of the Church of England. So whoever's king, whoever's queen, becomes the head of the Church of England, sort of like the, the pope, if you will, of, of that church. Uh, they believe church authority is subject to scripture. They do believe in original sin, so they retain that from the Catholic Church. They do, uh, they reject the doctrine of purgatory and all its associated practices like the indulgences and stuff and stuff like that and they only retain the sacraments that other protestants retain i.e baptism and the communion they allow their priests to get married and uh, they say that traditions of the church must be in line with scripture so that's very protestant so the church of england in the 19th century, something called the Oxford Movement tried to get the church to be more Catholic, and this led to the development of something called Anglo-Catholicism, emphasizing the sacraments and the apostolic secession, but within the Anglican theology. And so the Anglican Church still today continues to grapple with a lot of different theological, ethical, and social issues. They do include and ordain women. They're one of the few churches that ordain women and also ordain gays and lesbians and all this. And they also have many interfaith relationships. The church does have a lot of influence because when the British Empire, you know from history that the Brit Britain was all over the globe, they uh, actually conquered India and the Philippines and many other places. And so the British flag flew all over the world at one point. And so as that British empire expanded, so did the Anglican church. And so the church became very influential. And in the United States, it became the Episcopal church. So that when we talk about the Episcopal church next time, this is really the Anglican church. It's just that in the United States, it became the Episcopal church. Now, let's talk about a very interesting group that 
kind of developed around the same time called the Plymouth Brethren. And the reason I'm going to bring them up is because within them came this idea that many evangelical groups have adopted today and also many Protestant groups. So I'm going to tell you what that idea is in a minute. But these Plymouth Brethren, or simply referred to as the Brethren, they originated in the early 19th century in Plymouth, England. And they didn't want to create a new denomination. They just wanted to return to what they believe were the original practices of the New Testament. So they wanted to do what we want to do, just, just follow the Bible. And you know what, guys, you know, as we look at these denominations, especially after Catholicism during the Protestant Reformation, you can see this, the theme there. Like Martin Luther and many of these people, what they wanted to do is get back to the Bible, except that some of them didn't really implement it so greatly, <laughs> like Martin Luther. Okay, he wanted to go back to the Bible, but unfortunately, he kept a lot of the Catholic traditions going on. And so here are the Plymouth Brethren wanting to do the same thing. And a lot of these people that kind of split, their intention was not to create a denomination. They just wanted to uh, get back to the Bible. But in doing so, unfortunately, they eventually created a, a denomination because they didn't have a good format to, to work with. And, and they did introduce some errors as well or didn't get rid of a lot of errors. So some of the things they believe were okay but a lot of the things weren't. And so they continued in error. These Plymouth brethren here, they, especially this person called John Nelson Darby within the Plymouth brethren, he played a significant role in shaping the theology, not just of the brethren, but the theology of many other Protestant churches and evangelical churches that we still hear nowadays. They developed something called dispensationalism. It's even something that we sometimes use to describe the different distinct time periods, each marked by God's specific plan and revelation. That's what dispensationalism is. In this chart, you can kind of see a generic view of the dispensations, starting with Eden, then to the flood, then to Abraham, then the patriarchs come into play, then under the law of Moses, then Pentecost to the kingdom, and then the kingdom to eternity. Now, of course, this dispensationalism here is kind of skewed towards premillennialism. Remember, we talked about amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. I introduced that a little bit last time. And so there are three different eschatological views. Remember that that's a fancy word, eschatology, just meaning end times. And so there are different eschatological views concerning this kind of dispens dispensationalism or this way of viewing how God had specific plans during different times of history. So let's look at some of these to understand them because they're going to play a significant role in other denominations that we're going to talk about. And it's good to get a handle on this. So that when somebody comes to you and asks you, oh, what kind of dispensationalist are you? And you don't look at them like, uh, like a deer in the headlights, <laughs> but you know what they're talking about. And also if they ask you, are you amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial? You'll know also what, what they're talking about as well. So amillennialism is the belief 
that Christ reign spoken of in the book of Revelation chapter 20. And matter of fact, we might take a little bit of time to read from uh, Revelation chapter 20. If you take out your Bible, this is a significant chapter in the book of Revelation. And uh, if we look at chapter 20, I'm going to be reading here from the Christian Standard Bible. In that chapter, it talks about a thousand year reign, but it also talks about a few other things. It says, starting in verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. So we have a mention there of a thousand years when Satan will be bound. And he threw him into the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. After that, he must be released for a short time. Verse four talks about another symbolic number. Then I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. I also saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and who had not accepted the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years, another thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. The second death has no power over them, but they will be priests of God in Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So as you can see in these first two themes introduced here in Revelation chapter 20, we have the devil being bound for a thousand years. We have Jesus reigning for a thousand years. And so what kind of dispensationalist are you, whether amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, depends how you see these thousand years. For example, in this amillennialist view, they believe that Christ's reign is not a literal a thousand year, but it's symbolic. And as we go through the book of Revelation, there are many numerical symbols as well as many other symbols in Revelation. But we believe this thousand year reign is symbolic of the reign of Christ right now. And if you carefully look at the language of what I just read, it does sound like it's talking about Christians. It's talking about people who are reigning with Christ, who the second death won't affect them. And so we believe, we don't believe that this was will be a literal thousand year period of peace and prosperity, which post, uh, which premillennialists do believe. A millennialist, as we are, believe that the church is the kingdom of God on earth, that he is ruling now, and that he's going to return at the end of the age to judge the living and the dead, and then to establish his eternal kingdom it will continue in heaven right so that's what this chart shows this millennium which is the present age this is what we believe that the millennium is about but then you have a different view called premillennialism and so this is what this these plymouth brethren aside from teaching dispensationalism they also had this idea of how these different reigns or these different symbolic or, or numeric, they believed that it was a literal reign. This is how they interpret it under premillennialism. They believe that Jesus will return to earth before the millennium and rule with peace and righteousness on earth 
for a thousand years. They believe that the millennium will be a literal thousand year period of time in which Christ will reign and there will be peace because Satan is bound as they read in Revelation chapter 20. So as you can see, the chart is a little different here. They have uh, the return of Jesus, the millennium during which Satan is bound, and then the final judgment where there is a second resurrection and then the new heaven and the new earth. So this is what pre-millennialism is, believing that Christ is going to come before this millennium happens. Have you ever wanted to read the Bible in plain English, a language that you can actually understand and follow? Well, there is a translation like that called God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nations Mission Society. This is the only translation of the Bible in English that follows a dynamic equivalent translation philosophy. It makes the Bible very easy to understand and it flows very naturally in the English language. You can follow along my podcast where I read to you from God's Word translation for one whole year. You can search for the podcast on Spotify or your favorite podcast reader. Search for God's Word Translation by God's Word to the Nation Mission Society. You can also look it up under my name, Pedro Gelibert. Then you have something called post-millennialism. And that's the belief that Jesus returns to earth after the millennium, not before as the premillennialists do, but afterwards. Post-millennialists believe that the church will gradually evangelize the whole world and bring about a period of peace and prosperity. They believe that Christ will return at the end of this period to judge the living and the dead. So why am I bringing all this up? Just to focus really on this premillennialism because this is an, a, a teaching that many Pentecostals, Evangelicals, and some other Protestants believe. This can be traced uh, way back to the early church fathers. You can see kind of some of this thinking, especially under Papias and Justin Martyr. You could say that some of their views were considered precursors to premillennialism. They believed in a future earthly reign of Christ, not necessarily in his reign right now. So you can see traces of that. But in the 19th century, it had a revival again because John Nelson Darby from the Plymouth Brethren and Cyrus Schofield popularized this dispensational premillennialism, especially through the Schofield Reference Bible. I don't know if you've ever seen that Bible. I used to have a copy of the Schofield Reference Bible. And so through that Bible, it, it kind of popularized this idea of premillennialism. So this is dividing the history into distinct dispensations, particularly prophetic texts, which are interpreted in a very literal manner. And they have gained prominence in certain evangelical and fundamentalist circles. They also believe that there's a distinction between Israel and the church, the premillennialist, the dispensational premillennialist. They believe that God has separate plans for Israel and for the church. They believe that the nation of Israel will be restored and will play a significant role in the end times. They also believe that there's going to be 
some sort of pre-tribulation rapture. I'm sure you've heard about the rapture, right? They, they, there were even movies about it. They believe that some will be taken up into heaven. Some people, not everybody, before a seven-year tribulation period, as you see here in the chart. And that tribulation period is characterized by significant suffering and divine judgments as they interpret literally from the book of Revelation. They also believe that there will be one antichrist, a particular person that will be an antichrist, a global leader who will arise during the tribulation, initially bringing peace, but eventually showing his true evil nature. So that's why you, you can hear that a lot of religious people, especially on social media, are starting to say these things because they believe in this dispensational premillennialism. They believe that certain things from the book of Revelation are coming true and that the UN is going to make this global religion and that there will be one person that's going to bring us all together, but he is going to be the Antichrist. And this is all precursor to the battle of Armageddon, a final battle between the forces of good and evil. And then finally, after the millennium, there will be a final judgment where individuals are sent either to heaven or to hell based on their acceptance of Christ. And then there will be a new heaven and a new earth. So this is what dispensational premillennialism teaches. And it's a major doctrine in many evangelical churches, including Methodists, Baptists, Pentecostals, and Presbyterians. So it's something that you need to learn to identify and also understand that they are taking these symbols very literally, like the thousand-year reign, the rapture. They believe that a lot of the judgments spoken of in the book of Revelation are going to, are, some of them might be happening now or some of them will happen. Whereas we understand that the book of Revelation is highly symbolic and that most of the symbols that the book of Revelation is talking about are explaining things that have already happened, except for this millennium, which is the reign of Christ that is happening now. And really, in reality, that we're waiting for Jesus' second coming and the judgment. Those are the things that haven't happened yet. We understand that the book of Revelation is speaking about things that would soon happen to the people that, that it's addressed to in the first three chapters, the seven churches in Asia, talking to them about things that would happen in their lifetime. So a lot of the things that the book of Revelation speaks of already happened, all the tribulations and many of those things. And so once we hopefully have some uh, class where we're going to get into it again, we can uh, disseminate all these things and understand how premillennialism doesn't really fit within what the book of Revelation teaches. If you want to believe in premillennialism, you have to take a lot of parts of the book of Revelation and kind of rearrange them or, or ignore them altogether. Like, for example, the book of Revelation doesn't talk about a rapture. It doesn't say anything like that. Yet that's a major point in premillennialism. So that's uh, Anglicanism. That's a little bit of dispensational premillennialism for you, which started around that time. It got popularized around that time during with the Plymouth Brethren and brought into the United States. And another extremely influential denomination is Presbyterianism. It started around the same time, really, as Anglicanism, except a, a, a little bit different. Again, it's kind of different all over the globe, right? Martin Luther was in Germany. The Anglicans were in England. 
and now the Presbyterian Church, where did it start in Scotland? That's where it's kind of, you know, uh, moved forward. But before we get to how it started in Scotland, let's talk about a very influential person, John Calvin, who that's why it's called Calvinism, because it's attributed to him. He was one of the primary theologians that influenced the Presbyterianism. He did not directly establish Presbyterianism, but his theological writings served as the foundation for these Reformed churches or Presbyterian church called the Reformed churches. And so let's take a look here at some comparisons between John Calvin and Luther. So Luther and Calvin agreed with a lot of different things. Where they differed was in their belief of predestination. And this is a very important part of Calvinism. The Calvinists believe that God determines in advance who's going to be saved and who's going to be condemned and that you can do nothing about it. You're either one of the elect who's going to be saved or you're just going to be condemned. And no matter what you do, you're going to fall in one of those two categories. And so based on that, that's one of the tenets of Calvinism. We're going to examine the other tenets in a moment. But based on this idea of Calvinism, he created a very powerful religious city in Geneva, which was extremely influential in the formation of the Reformed churches. So they had more of a system of belief or a theology than even the Lutherans did. The Lutherans kind of formed their theology a little later, but the Calvinists did even sooner. Look at this slide here. This is the five solas of the Reformation. And these are very important for us to understand so that we can understand the ideas of what drove the Reformation forward or, or what drove them to separate or protest <laughs> against the Catholics. And a lot of these are, are pretty scriptural Um these are the five foundations of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, written in Latin, of course, because that was the religious language at the time. Sola Scriptura. They believed that the Bible alone was supposed to be the authority on anything religious. And that's pretty much in line to what the Bible teaches, right? 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God, profitable for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So yeah, we should go by scripture alone. Then the second tenet is solos Cristo, meaning Christ alone. So what are they protesting here? Each of these, by the way, is a point protesting against something in Catholicism. What does sola scriptura protest against? Well, it was protesting that tradition was not to be of any authority, only scripture, right? When they say solus Christus, meaning Christ alone, they are saying only Jesus has authority, not Mary, not the saints, not the Pope, not anyone else. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man, and salvation is found only through him. That's a major tenet, very much in keeping with Scripture as well. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then they have sola gratia, meaning grace alone, as opposed to what? As opposed to grace through the sacraments or the sales of indulgences or the confessions through priests, right? They wanted to get away from that. They wanted to go back to the Bible. And so they come up with grace alone. 
as Titus chapter 3, verse 5 says. He saved us, not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. So salvation comes solely through the grace of God, independent of human merit, which is correct. Then we spoke about this one before when we talked about Lutheranism, sola fide, or faith alone, as opposed to being saved by works, which the Catholic Church promoted through the sacraments, right? They had to do a certain number of good deeds so that they could get into heaven. So it kind of became a competition. Who did more good deeds? But the Reformationists believed that faith in Christ alone is what saves apart from works, which is in keeping with Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. You are saved by grace through faith, and this is not for your, from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And as I shared with you in our last class, Luther himself believed that baptism was necessary for salvation because many people who believe in sola fide nowadays and say that they believe in these tenets of the Reformation, they don't really believe in them because they differ from what Luther himself said. Luther still thought that baptism was necessary for salvation. Of course, as a Catholic, he's thinking of baptism, of baptizing babies because they believe in original sin, which in itself is, is not a biblical teaching. But many sola fide people today will see baptism as a work, which Luther didn't see it that way. And then last but not least, soli deo gloria, meaning glory to God alone, as opposed to what? Well, remember that the popes were seeking their own glory. Many other leaders of the Catholic Church were seeking their own glory. They wanted to do work so that people could admire them. And they said, no, no glory to man. We ought not to seek our own glory as the popes and these other Catholic leaders do. All glory is due to God alone, both in life and in our salvation. So these are the five foundations that really pushed this Presbyterian church and the Lutheran church, but even the Presbyterian church into really cementing themselves. And so this Westminster Confession of Faith comes out between 1643 and 1646 in England. And it is one of the most important and enduring confessional documents in Presbyterianism and in the Reformed churches. So here are some of the tenets of the Westminster Confession of Faith. And anybody that you ask who's in the Reformed churches, the Presbyterian church, even the Baptist church, will understand the Westminster Confession of Faith or even quote it as, as part of uh, their belief, kind of like the Apostles' Creed, but a little different. And so what is the minute, what does the Westminster Confession of Faith include? Well, it includes the teaching of Calvinism. And so let's talk about that a little bit right now. Calvinism itself can be summarized with the acronym TULIP, which is the five points of Calvinism. Uh, foundational in many of the Reformed and Presbyterian traditions. So here's a quick breakdown and some scriptural arguments for each of these points. If you like this podcast, please show your support by clicking on the support link on my Anchor FM profile. This ensures I will continue producing authentic 
Christian content as the Lord allows me. Thank you and have a blessed day. It's important to familiarize ourselves with Calvinism because you are going to deal with it in conversations with many Reformed churches and evangelical churches because it's not just a Presbyterian belief, but it has seeped its way into many other churches, some Baptist, some Evangelical, certainly Presbyterian. So it's very important to become familiar with TULIP and what it means and what the five points of Calvinism are. So the T itself is for total depravity. And this teaches that every aspect of human nature is corrupted by sin, leaving people incapable of choosing God or doing good apart from divine intervention. And pretty much the scripture that summarizes this is Romans 3, 10 and 11. If you read the whole thing, 10 through 18, it really captures it. But I'm just going to read 10 and 11, which says there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. So this is probably the only true tenet of Calvinism, the only one that's actually scriptural, as you will see as we go along. The U is for unconditional election. So according to this point, God has chosen certain individuals for salvation based solely on his sovereign will, not on merit, not on action, not even on obedience. And the scripture that they use for this, Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, is a scripture that is misinterpreted. Let's read it. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. So I think the word that throws people off is this word predestined, right? Because it, it goes in line. It sounds like it's in line with the Calvinistic teaching of unconditional election, which is another way to say predestination. But let's look let, in, in verse five, that word that appears there, predestined is a composite Greek word, which the two words mean a pro orizo which is beyond the horizon. That's what the words literally mean. That's the etymology of the words, which is often translated as foreordained or predetermined or preordained or sometimes translated as predestined. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 is very, very similar, contains this word as well. But this tenet, as they stated, right? presents a number of problems with scripture. Because if God chose individuals before the foundation of the world as they're going to be saved and some other going to be condemned without your choice, where is free will in this? Where, where does that leave free will? Because in John 3.16, we see free will there. It says, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So it seems that Jesus is saying, if I choose to believe in him, I can have eternal life. But no, according to the Calvinists, no, 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 that was already decided way before you decided. <laughs> it was decided for you who would perish and who would be saved. But again, it flies in the face of Romans 3.20. I mean, sorry, Revelation 3.20, where it says, see, this is Jesus speaking. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him 
and he with me. So again, we see free will in this passage. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door. So there's a component that belongs to me. I need to believe. I need to open the door for Jesus. So this contradicts that idea of predestination. Now, predestination also contradicts the fact that we can lose our salvation because according to this tenet of unconditional election, it means that if I'm destined to be saved, I cannot lose my salvation because God decided I was going to be saved. And there's nothing I can do to lose that salvation. That flies in the face of quite a few scriptures, some which I'm going to mention now, like Hebrews 10, 26 and 27, where it says, if we deliberately go on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. So this passage is talking about those who continue in sin can actually lose their salvation. Jesus also said that in Matthew 7, 21, 23, where he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father in heaven. So he's talking about those who do the will, those who obey are the ones who keep their track to heaven. But some people can definitely lose their salvation. So I think that Calvinists really just confuse this concept of predetermination with predestination. They think that God, okay, God predestined you, meaning, okay, I'm already going to go somewhere and it doesn't really matter what I say or what I do. But that's not really what the Bible teaches. I'm going to explain it to you in this way. The Jesus train if, will get to heaven. If you want to go to heaven, you need to get on the Jesus train and you need to stay on it. If I get off the Jesus train, I'm not going to make it to the destination where the Jesus train is going to go. So here we have both concepts in there. This idea of predetermination or foreordination, which is really the the better way, I think, to interpret those passages that use those that composite word of pro orizo or beyond the horizon, right? I think that it shows that, yes, God determined that those who would be in Christ would make it to heaven. Absolutely. That leaves me a free will to choose Christ. But if I don't choose Christ, then I'm not going to make it to heaven. But if I choose Christ, I'm predetermined to go to heaven. Just like when you get on the E train from Briarwood train station, you're going to get to the World Trade Center. It's a, it's, it's a foreordained train. You could say a predestined train. <laughs> but if I choose to get off it, then I'm not going to make it to the destination. right? So I have to remain on the Jesus train. Here's another chart that kind of says the same thing, but with more... A confusion for some of you, maybe. <laughs> but think about the big arrow as the Jesus train, right? The big arrow is the Jesus train. So all who get on the big arrow are going to stay all the way through the end. Only the faithful are going to reach the destination. But sometimes, as you see in this uh, illustration, some people might get off because they disobey. And like the scriptures here say, only the obedient are justified. Only the faithful are glorified. So I may be predestined, I may be called, but if I don't obey, then I'm not going to be justified. If I don't stay faithful to the end, I'm not glorified. So I think that this really incorporates 
the scriptures better as opposed to this idea of predestination that says, I don't have a choice. I'm going to make it to heaven or I'm going to go to hell. And if I'm saved, I'm always going to be saved, which is not true as well. Let's look at the next one, limited atonement. So this view holds that Christ's death on the cross was intended to atone only the sins of the elect, not everyone, not universally, right? And they use John 10, 11, where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, which is true. Yes, this is understood since only those who accept Christ and his gift can receive forgiveness of sins. If I don't accept Christ, then I can't receive forgiveness of sins. Uh, but I do have some reservations narrowing down this view of Jesus' atoning sacrifice. Because when Jesus was sacrificed on the cross, yes, we understand that the actions that he took would apply to those who would receive his gift. But if all the sacrifices of the Old Testament explain different views or perspectives of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, as we studied when we went over Hebrew, then the sacrifice that is fulfilled in Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, these were for the sins committed in ignorance. So this can mean that Jesus' blood is also shed for those who might not be able to knowingly accept his sacrifice. I'm talking about like babies or children who die. There are some children who die before they can commit to Christ. Or there are some people with limited cognition or understanding that commit sins in ignorance. And so they're covered under this sacrifice of Yom Kippur in the Jewish nation. So I tend to believe that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of many, for the sins of everybody. Of course, some of them, like me, we have to accept his gift. But there are many who are not able to accept it, like a baby who died before he was able to do that, or somebody who may be mentally deficient and cannot accept, yet they're innocent. And they're innocent. Why? Because Christ's sacrifice was sufficient for everybody. And so this that's where I digress with the Calvinists in that limited atonement view. Calvinists generally believe in original sin. So they would say that a baby would need to be baptized in order to erase that original sin and for them to go to heaven. So they believe that if, if a baby dies without being baptized, that they're going to go to hell. And that's where I have to fundamentally disagree with this limited atonement point. And then we have I, irresistible grace. At this, this teaches that when God extends his saving grace to an individual, that person inevitably will come to faith and repentance because nobody can resist the grace of God. That's why they call it irresistible grace. And the passage they point to is John 6, 44, where Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. But in order to really understand what Jesus is saying there to kind of provide some balance, let's go back to that passage in Revelation 3.20, where Jesus is also speaking. And he says, see, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. So God knocks on everyone's door, right? Because he wants all people to be saved. 
and to know the truth. First Timothy 2, 3 and 4. Second Peter 3 and 9. So God does want everybody to be saved, but it still depends on the free will of the person. You know, God doesn't do like a magic thing to make a person change their change a person's mind or anything like that. Because would it be love if there was no free will? Right? It depends on the free will of the person, which is why we have to interpret that passage correctly to understand that people do have a choice. Yes, his grace may seem irresistible once you understand it. And once you want to invite Jesus into your life, absolutely. But there has to be that hearing him knock and opening the door to let Jesus in. So this is another tenet of Calvinism that I have to disagree on just because of what the scriptures present. And last but not least, the perseverance of the saints. This final point asserts that those who are truly saved will persevere in their faith until the end, being kept secure by God's power. This is the tenet that says, once saved, always saved, which we already debunked because there are many scriptures that talk about, no, you can lose your salvation, like Hebrews 10, 26 through 27, which we already read, and Matthew 7, 21 through 24, uh, and many, many other verses that we understand where the Bible tells us you need to persevere. And the reason why you need to persevere is because there's a possibility that you, if you give up, you could lose your salvation. Now, if you persevere and you keep your faith, then yes, you will also win the crown of life. So those were the five tenets of Calvinism. Uh, the Westminster Confession also talks about covenant theology. The Presbyterians emphasize the concept of covenants as means to understand God's relationship with humanity. So this idea of covenant theology, which is is good, you know, to it's a good way to look at things. Yes, there are many covenants that God presented throughout the the Bible and and we can understand God's desire for relationship through those covenants. There's nothing necessarily implicitly wrong with looking at it that way. Um, their church governance, the Presbyterian church, is very distinct. That's why it's called Presbyterian, because there's a system of elders or presbyters. Because remember, presbyteros is one of the Greek words that we translate as elder. And so they have a specific system where they govern the church at different levels, congregational, regional, and national. They also recognize only two sacraments, like I mentioned before, baptism and the Lord's Supper, although they don't believe that baptism is necessarily immersion or that adults only do it because they also believe in baptizing babies because they believe in original sin. Once you believe in an or in original sin, then you have to believe in baptizing babies. Now, interestingly, their eschatology is a millennial. They're, they're not really pre-millennial in their belief. The Westminster Confession of Faith doesn't delve too specifically into distinguishing pre-millennial or post-millennial views, but within the Presbyterian circle, a millennialism aligns more closely with this kind of reform theology. So there might be some diversity. There might be some Presbyterians that do hold to a pre-millennialist view, but most of them do hold to a traditional millennial view from Presbyterian Church. Have a great evening. Cause it won't be a Baptist that's sitting on the throne A Presbyterian or a Methodist that's for